is the Pink Smoke Podcast, and oh, Chris, nice to see you on this side of the Patreon wall. How you doing, buddy? I am doing great out here, liberated from the paywall. Although we should mention that if you're listening to this in a Patreon subscriber, you do have early access. Uh, you get new episodes one week early. But otherwise, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, episodes are now open to all audiences. It is the change in our gestalt our schemata our business plan so to speak <laughs> and uh it's great to have people listening to this episode although it does tie into uh the things that have replaced our patreon bonuses rather than uh have the podcast be uh what the patreon subscriber benefits are we're offering other things that we think are even better and even more interesting and the patreon subscriber benefit for august i think is something i should let you tell listeners about john I would love to. So what I have done is in full-length audio commentary for the 1990 film I'm Dangerous Tonight, directed by Toby Hooper, starring um, Machen Amick, Corey Parker, Dee Wallace, Arlie Ermey, uh, William Berger, and, um, and others. Anthony Perkins is on and the poster, course, although Anthony you'd be hard-pressed to say he stars in it. True, true. But he is definitely a presence in it. And if you love Anthony Perkins, you'll love this movie. Um, this is a film that we've talked about before on podcasts, but we've done articles about. Uh, it's a Pink Smoke favorite and uh, one that definitely does not get seen by enough people. So I'm really glad to have been able to kind of delve even deeper into it and come up with some really fun, interesting information. I interviewed a lot of people involved with it, including uh, co-writer, co-producer, Philip John Taylor, whose original intention, I'm just going to give this part away of the commentary away because it ties into what we're talking about now, uh, was to adapt the book we're talking about, Waltz into Darkness by Cornell Woolrich into a USC TV movie. He wasn't able to get the rights to it, so instead he came upon I'm Dangerous Tonight and ended up making that, which is based on a novella also by Woolrich. Um, yes. But his original intention was to do Waltz into Darkness. Interesting. And this is, again, that is the Patreon subscriber benefit. If you would like to hear this commentary with the film, uh, this is something for Patreons only. Uh, but tonight we will be talking about Waltz into Darkness, another Woolrich book. And John... How do we delve in? Shall we dig into it? Shall we get down to business or shall we do more bureaucratic shuffling of papers? <laughs> uh, no, or corporatist pitching of what we do <laughs> as strong-minded businessmen, always with our eye on the bottom line. As much as there's that, we are shrewd businessmen, the two of us. Um, I am genuinely psyched to, uh, to, to re release this commentary because it is a lot of fun. There's a lot of cool stuff in it. I'm happy to hear people's reactions to it. I am super psyched. It's obviously a favorite movie of ours. This is a movie that you and I uh, bonded over uh, loving. The the insanity of the plot, the Tobe Hooperness of the execution of it. Uh, it's it's really a, a quintessential film for us in some ways. And the amount of work and research that you've amassed for this commentary track is genuinely impressive. I hope so. I hope that people enjoy it, but I'd love to hear feedback on it. Um, going into this, I think we just need a little bit of background real quick into who Cornell Woolrich was. If you are a film fan, you should know him immediately because he's one of the most adapted crime uh, novel writers and crime short story writers of the 40s and 50s. Uh, most famously, of course, he's known as the guy who wrote the story that Rear Window is based on. But if you look back, uh, there are just tons of 
film noirs, um, like the, the boy who cried murder and things like that, uh, became really well-known movies during that time. And then he was rediscovered late in the seventies, uh, early late in the sixties rather. And then the seventies by filmmakers like Francois Truffaut and uh, Fassbender who adapted his work. So he is definitely a film lovers kind of writer. Yes, he he is sort of uh, in the film world one of those those towering cinematic figures. In a funny way, he's he's almost his cinematic legacy is almost more important than his uh, uh, literary legacy. He's just so wrapped up in cinema history in a very fundamental way that I, I think of him as being a, a cinema figure. You know, he's, he's Rear Window and The Leopard Man and Truffaut's <laughs> misguided attempts at aging, aping Hitchcock and, and Fassbender and so many film noirs. He was one of the most adapted authors ever. Uh, he's really, it's incredible how uh, sort of essential he is to cinema history in, in so many ways. And I was not super familiar with his work. I had read Black Alibi on which Leopard Man is based. And I had read the, the, uh, the novella that uh, I'm Dangerous Tonight is based on. And I hadn't read much else of his work. I had read Black Path of Fear and it had, and it just, nothing about it stuck with me. He was an author that I feel like I don't know much about. And I think Waltz Into Darkness is generally seen as his masterpiece. Is that, is that fair to say? Like a lot of um, sort of uh, pulp literary figures, it's, it's a little hard to say what's considered his most important work in some ways, but this is like the heavy one. When you pick it up, you heft it up and down in your hand and you say, this one, it's twice the size of the others. <laughs> Why, this will take me three days to read instead of one. Uh, and I, that's always been my relationship to it is like, oh, that's the thick one. That's the yeah. one that he, he seems to have uh, taken more time with or certainly more words with. So maybe I should read that one to find some lodestar for Woolrich, which I yeah. don't feel like I had. It's definitely a, a weird kind of split in terms of, you know, Woolrich appreciators, because on the one hand, uh, a lot of them think, yes, it is his masterpiece. It's the one that he clearly put a lot of work into where he has entire chapters about an empty house and, uh, you know, empty streets and does a chapter on Mardi Gras, even though it is completely unpivotal to what's going to happen throughout the rest of the book. Yes, it's a book that screams its research. It's one of those books that that just can't help but announce. And in 19, in 1880, when it's set, this would have been unfashionable for this. This is how newspapers were arranged, arranged at newspaper stands. It's a, it's a book that, that really um, is, announces that it has been researched in a way that you don't necessarily get in pulp a lot. Yeah, and so in that way, it's really different from most of his stuff. It's not a good introductory novel to his work uh, because it's so much different. Uh, and uh, not the kind of sensational sort of suspense novel that The Bride Wore Black or Phantom Lady are. Uh, it's an experiment with tone and perspective. And it's a weird thing, too, because I thought, well, this is the one he wanted to be remembered for. Like, this is the one he really poured his heart into. But then, strangely, it was one of the books published under his pseudonym, William Irish. Yes. So it's not like he ever claimed ownership over this particular book, you know? Uh, yeah. But that's also one of the things uh, I, I have no... 
good sense of why uh, he was publishing other under pseudonyms other than he wrote a lot and uh, you don't want to wear out one of the names, you know? Yeah, I never understood pseudonyms from a marketing perspective or anything, you know? It just, well, I, I think it's, it. I think of the story you hear from Fassbender of, you know, where he almost had pseudonyms forced on him as a director because distributors were like, you're putting out three movies a year. People have, are sick of seeing the Fassbender name. It's hard to build excitement around the new one. And I think that's a lot of the literary pseudonyms. Uh, and also with somebody like, you know, Westlake and Richard Stark, his pseudonym to differentiate between the tones of the stuff that you know you're getting something nastier with Stark than you are with Westlake. And yeah, you know, if it's a different writing style, that I understand. But if you're basically doing the same sort of thing like Woolrich was, yeah. Uh, and I, and again, this is you know this is wartime and post-war marketing. I don't know, you know, what the kind of the emphasis on things were, but it seems almost like superstar authors weren't a thing back then you know so it yes. wasn't like oh no not another stephen king book you know uh not another cool Renault Woolrich I just bought one guy you know I don't even yeah. know what but yeah so I'm just I'm just agreeing and Waltz with Into Darkness is bizarre. 19 yeah it's 1947 and he also published books under the name George Hopley yeah. as well and I think those were the only three those were them yeah those were them uh George Hopley oh. being his middle name yeah yes yes and uh, yeah, so 1947 is the year it's published. With each of our pulp fictions that we talk about, we do pairings with them. We do an aperitif pairing for an artwork of any kind, a movie, a painting, a piece of architecture, a piece of music to ingest before you read the book, and then a dessert pairing for something afterwards. And uh, John, would you like to kick it off or would you prefer me to go first? I'll go first because I would never pass up an opportunity to once again, cheaply promote something I've done, but uh, it ties in with I'm dangerous tonight. I'm uh, going to throw out the movie dream lover with Machen and Mick, the star <laughs> of I'm dangerous tonight, which is another film uh, with a similar plot of a, a woman who uh, comes into a man's life. Uh, they get married and then he realizes she's not exactly who she says she is. And, and she's a, too good to be true. She's so sexy and so beautiful. Yes, and, exactly. And she's a dream lover. Sorry. Right. Yeah, no, but it's it's strange because it came out, you know, in the early 90s, you know, during the kind of the softcore thriller era, and there's definitely that aspect to it. But it's a much weirder movie than that. I mean, you've seen it. It's yes. the way it delves into James Spader's psyche and his ideal woman, you know, just what he thinks of as this perfect relationship. It's almost like this woman has been conjured up out of, nightmares of you know this nightmare fantasy of his perfect woman uh so it becomes not even about her deception and the con game she's running more so than like how he is just trying to like force her into this ideal uh wife for him and this ideal partner and the relationships just kind of spirals out of that and they become intertwined through you know over the course of several years much like in this novel uh so i'd say uh even more so than the uh, Truffaut film which is uh, mississippi mermaid which is uh much closer to the plot of the book dream lover i think is tonally a lot more similar to waltz into darkness yes and it's it's an interesting film it's a film i i i was quite into when I was in high school. It's directed by Nicholas Kazan, who is Elia Kazan's son and Zoe Kazan's father. And it was shot by Jean-Yves Escoffier, who shot uh, uh, a lot of Le uh, Leos Carax's films, like uh, uh, Bad Blood and, and Lovers on the Bridge. And, you know, 
what very interesting cinematographer as well. The the sort of pedigree of this movie um, is a little more interesting than the run of the mill early nineties erotic thriller, which if you're aware of this movie, you're probably aware of it in that context. It's one of those like special unrated home video cut blaring across the box type of movies and uh, really sort of positioned itself in all of its marketing and the way it was held in the public imagination as being another Skinamax movie. And it's, it's, it's a weirder film than that. I think that yeah. that's a, yeah. a, a good uh, and fair description of it. Um, that video box is not going to prepare you for like the opening with a psychedelic clown dream sequence. You know? <laughs> um, it's, and, it's, and it's funny that you mention Mississippi Mermaid. Truffaut directed uh, two um, Woolrich adaptations basically back to back. He made The Bride Wore Black with John Moreau, which is uh, um, kind of, it, it was not a success at the time and it was sort of uh, suppressed a little bit. It, it's sort of a lost movie. It's most well known now as being the film that obviously and unquestionably was an influence on Kill Bill that Quentin Tarantino denies he ever saw. If you see these movies, there are scenes staged the same way. It's it's impossible he did not see it, but he really vigorously denies having seen it. And that's sort of what Bride Wore Black is most known for. Um, we well, you know, two interesting things to add to that. Um, Fassbender, when he made Martha, which is his adaptation of the last uh, story that was published during Woolwich's life called For the Rest of Her Life, and is very faithful to that short story about a misogynistic relationship, yes. uh, not masochistic relationship between uh, this uh, woman and this man that she's uh, uh, unreasonably dedicated to, even though he is doing terrible things to her. Um, and then Fassbender intended just release it with no credit to Woolrich. And when somebody saw it and said, whoa, whoa, hey, this is clearly this Woolrich story. And he said, um... You know, I probably did read that story, but I did I when I wrote the screenplay. Yeah. I did not realize I it's, was doing it. Yes, it seems like a case of of cryptomnesia, you know, of yeah. the phenomenon of inadvertently ripping something off, and it seems like it seems impossible that that is not the case with Bride War Black if you watch it in Kill Bill. Um And another and, thing when Alice yeah. Lowe made Pre- Prevenge, her fantastic horror movie, uh they're clearly similarities to bride war black and it seems influenced by that and we brought it up to her i think and her response was i've honestly never seen it i based it on a kate bush music video yes that itself was influenced by the bride that was based on bride war black but all these levels of like Woolrich not getting his due from these people is just bizarre (laughs) well it's funny because truffaut famously made Bride War Black, which is not my aperitif pairing, uh, but he made Bride War Black as a Hitchcock homage. It's when he's sort of trying to figure out, Truffaut spent a lot of his career trying to figure out who he wanted to be. He was com- somebody who was constantly trying on genres and styles and literary approaches, and none of them fit on him quite right. He was sort of a perpetually um, uncomfortable 
filmmaker. He was always seemed like he was wearing the wrong jacket for a lot of his career and very rarely seemed comfortable. And so he tried this famously Bride War Black as a, as a Hitchcock homage. It was a commercial failure. It was apparently a very miserable shoot where he fought with John Moreau and the, the cinematographer Raoul Coutard uh, the entire time. And it had, he hadn't been happy when it how it had turned out. He, he claims he had decided to make that book because he had these memories of during World War II, during the occupation of reading the William Irish book as like a young teenager, uh, maybe a, a, an adolescent. And just knowing he wasn't supposed to be reading this book, that it was for adults, and uh, just having this feeling of what it conjured in him and trying to capture it with the film, not having it work. And so he turns around, he makes it in 1968. He turns around, it's a big failure, 1969, makes Waltz into Darkness into a film in 1969. He basically asked immediately for a Colonel Woolwich do-over uh, with Mississippi Mermaid, which is based on Waltz into Darkness. And it stars Jean-Paul Belmondo and Catherine Deneuve. And it's, uh, it's a more successful film in some ways, but it's a, a way less interesting film. We'll get into it when we talk about the book some. I think it's insanely miscast with Belmondo. And he tries to change the, the setting some to make it uh, sort of more uh, uh, Frenchify it in some way, you know, that it's, that it's, it's not set in New Orleans in 1880 anymore. That it's, I love it's, French fries with my movies. <laughs> um, he, tr he tries to change it up and it's, it's interesting. That seems to be the movie. He has a few quotes. I don't have them here in front of me where he talks about, he made shoot the piano player in Brideward Black and Mississippi Mermaid, where he said, you know, before I started making movies, I thought I wanted to adapt all these pulp novels that I loved and make gangster and crime movies like I had loved from other filmmakers, from the American noir directors and the American auteurs whose reputations he had helped make. But once I started making these movies, I realized I didn't like these characters and didn't want to be around them. And that that's not what I want to do, that I, I don't like the people in these movies and they don't interest me when I'm forced to live with them as an artist. And Mississippi Mermaid seems to be the one where he's like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. And he never, uh, for the rest of his career, makes anything uh, based on pulp in that, in that way, which he had, which was probably, which was basically about half his career up until that point. You know, I think he had made eight films and three of them were, were based on, you know, Goodis or Woolrich. Um, and so it's a fascinating turning point for him as well. And I'm not recommending either of those films <laughs> as a, as an this. I quite like the Bride War Black, but it's a strange movie. Bride War Black is a very strange, uh, uh, movie. And if it doesn't get you into the Woolrich mindset at all, I think that, that Dream Lover is a much better thing for getting you to mindset. My pairing is, uh, perhaps, uh, totally bananas. I'm picking, um, Herman Melville's Paradise of Bachelor and the Tartarus of Maids, which is like a pair of short stories that are sort of just like matching scene sketches. Um, they're both set in America in the uh, 1850s, I want to say 1855, not quite the same time period as... Um, as Waltz into Darkness, but there's something that's very similar about it. And what these stories are, it's just like these two sketches. There's not even really plots to them. One of them is about this uh, like private club uh, in London 
for like uh, academics and lawyers and intelligentsia types, basically upper class, rich intellectual types who sit in this little bar and have a fancy meal and smoke their cigarettes and drink their brandy in a very, very cozy way, right? And it's the paradise of bachelors. And it feels very similar to a lot of the paradise of bachelors that end up getting described in Woolrich's book to me of sort of those male spaces that are very deliberately designed to exclude women in some way and sort of the comfort of a, of a world that consciously excludes women. And, um, and just sort of connecting that to uh, sort of aristocracies, money, power, um, intelligence, that kind of thing. Um, and then it's paired with the second sketch is this absolutely uh, miserable scene of young women working in a paper factory in New England. And it is, you know, Tartarus. It's paradise of bachelors, so it's heaven for bachelors and Tartarus of maids and hell for these young women. And it's about just the absolute miserable drudgery of that's put on these women factory workers in this era. And it manages to be just like totally harrowing. When you read it, you're like, God, I hope I never have a factory job in my entire life. But also the sense of um, how these books are also about how um, gender stereotypes of the era don't uh, apply themselves in some way is that you don't think of women as being overworked blue collar types and men as being pampered aesthetes who just want to like sort of lounge around and and live in their little fantasy worlds and I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating about it and if you read it they're they're excellent I really uh, enjoy the sketches to compare them to Waltz in the Darkness which also I think is dealing with the same issues of gender stereotypes and how our our hero quote-unquote hero sort of walks into pits over and over again by having stereotypes in his mind about what women are and what femininity means and what love means and what man's relationship to women is and what social structures are set up and how women exist within social structures and how men exist within social structures. And I think that that's unquestionably one of the themes of the book for it. And I think if you read a, a better piece of literature about those themes before you read this, I think it would uh, expand your sense of the value of Waltz into Darkness in some way. Oh, yeah. I never would have made that connection, but that's an interesting pairing for sure. Yes. And I do feel a little like Waltz into Darkness, because it's so clearly his monument work, he wants it to be the monumental one, the monument to you know, William Irish and Carnell Lurlrich, um, that he's, he's asking you to take it more seriously. And so I think I'm very hard on this book when I think about it, because it's asking me to. It's asking me to consider it in the context of, quote unquote, real literature like Herman Melville. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you read real literature before you read it, the shortcomings of this book are painfully obvious. Although in some ways, I also really like this book. It is the best thing I've read by him and it is the one he puts the most work into. And it has really interesting ideas and really interesting themes in it. But it's, it's to me, 
Waltz into Darkness is most fascinating as an illustration of what divides literature from pulp. You know, yeah, that's what fair. divides high art from low art in some way. That's interesting. And that's totally fair, I think. I mean, if we're talking about Woolrich as a writer, uh, and I've read, you know, I've read several of his books at this point. Um, he's trashy. He's pretentious. He's hokey, yes. you know? Uh, yes. And I think his biggest quality as a writer is that the ideas are there, yes. you know? And the characters with these ideas are there in every moment, you know? That the dialogue, even though, even though it's incredibly cheesy, it's basically them laying their souls bare, you know? I mean, there's yeah. no subtext to these books. It's just like these characters are telling us well, how they feel. Well, subtext is for cowards. Right. I know some writers who use subtext. <laughs> They're all cowards. Um, it's also really important to know, I think, going into just a little bit of biographical information, Woolrich, by all accounts, was a miserable guy, like a misanthropic recluse, basically. Um, he was only married once to a woman while he was out in L.A. Uh, trying to become a screenwriter, trying to sell some screenplays. He met this woman and uh, impetuously proposed to her, even though their relationship was like, he would walk behind her and watch her dance with other people, you know, like it was completely yeah. unintimate. He proposed to her like sitting on a couch, you know, in the, in the living room. Uh, and then three months later abandoned her. And after he abandoned her, she found a diary that uh, was just a scathing uh, account of his time with her and her family, just the nastiest things. And also found he'd had a locked suitcase that he kept during the whole marriage. He left it open. These things he left for her to find, apparently. Yeah. Uh, a sailor outfit that he would put on to go out and cruise at night while they were married. The marriage itself was never consummated. Um, so, like, and then he went and lived with his mother for the rest of her life. Like, that's all he did. He left LA, went back to New York, and was just with his mother until she died. What kind and of person would Cohen conjure in his mind? Like he looks like a chicken farmer is how I would describe him. He <laughs> looks like a wet cigar, like a, just a tight, wrinkled, peering, miserable man, like somebody who would be in Vernon, Florida, is how I would describe him looking yeah. in some fundamental way. No, you've, I, you're right. That story is horrifying. It also ties into Walsh into Darkness. Yeah, and that he would then kind of you know, withdraw completely uh, to his writing and just living with his mother, who he had a love-hate relationship with, and he had a weird kind of obsession over uh, so that when she died, like he kind of mentally collapsed. Um, this is He's just a got portrait. something Ed Gain about him Very in his Ed looks Gain. too. Yeah, in his looks. <laughs> <laughs> I that's not far off. Absolutely, Ed Gain, the serial killer. Uh, so all these things, I think, inform uh, his writing in an interesting way because almost like Patricia Highsmith, I would say, if you know anything about her, and we've discussed her book, The Sweet Sickness, it's crazy that he has all these insights and this very acute awareness of human behavior and relationships because he seems like somebody who would not have any kind of emotion or care enough to write a a story about a man who is crushed by a woman and have any sort of sympathy for the characters. Yeah, it's interesting. The writer I would compare him to is Stephen King, where when I'm reading the books, I'm just like, this man is a bad writer. He is bad with the written word. These metaphors are terrible. He's pretentious at all the wrong times. The dialogue is terrible. But these are still, but he's got it. Whatever it is, he's got it. You kid, you got the goods. When you read (laughs) Stephen King, you're not like, give up nobody else read this you're like this 
this works, like this is just this plays in some way, even as you're reading it, you're like, just like, he's not good at what you would label him. And I think that that Colonel Woolrich has the same thing of, of this guy is not a good writer, but he's got it. He's yeah. got it at the yeah. same time. And it's, it's a very hard quality to describe. It's not as simple as these are good, compelling plots. It's not as simple as that. It's characters that hook you. It's situations that hook you. It's plots that hook you. It's thoughts and ideas about the world to that hook you. It's interesting. It's an interesting perspective and a writer with an interesting perspective that's compelling. And that's definitely what Stephen King has. So you can get over, you know, any number of, of things that you have to get over to like his books. And I'd say that's, mind that's my <laughs> mind libraries and magical, I don't even know, developmentally disabled aliens. I don't even know how to describe them anymore. And just any number of, of, thing, of nonsense that you have to get over. And that it makes it, that's worth getting over too, I think. I think that it's sort of worth getting over that stuff. With I agree. Yeah, I think, I think it's rewarding for a lot of reasons and definitely worth wading through the hokum and the pretension to get to that stuff. Um, Waltz into Darkness, I'll just uh, kind of get started here on the plot, uh, is a story of Amor Fu. You know, if Joe Bob Briggs were going to, inter- you know, introduce it, he'd say, I'm more foo. Uh, it opens in 1880 New Orleans. With Does that go with the switchblade foo? Switchblade foo, a more foo. <laughs> uh, 1880 New Orleans, uh, our, our, our hero, Louis Durand, uh, in his late 30s is the uh, co-owner of a successful coffee import business. And he's awaiting the arrival of his bride-to-be, who was a woman named Julia, arriving on a boat from St. Louis. He has never like met her. City of New Orleans paddle boat, a boat yeah. that still is in use today. I've ridden on the city of New Orleans, I believe. And survived. That's good. <laughs> not everybody does, we learn. John, I'm not saying I didn't commit murders. You've misunderstood <laughs> what I'm saying. Uh, I'm accusing no one. Um, he has never met this woman. They've only corresponded and pr- he's proposed marriage by mail. Uh, and he's shocked to find not the dowdy old maid he'd expected from her p- uh, picture but rather a vibrant young blonde woman who claims to be Julia explaining that she was nervous about impressions. And so had sent a photo of her aunt instead. And of a course, traffic stopping young woman who doesn't, who says, I didn't want you to only be in love with me for my looks. Yes. I wanted to have something real with you. Everybody loves me for my looks, but we have something real Lewis. Right. So for that first stretch of the novel, everyone but Lewis knows this woman is an imposter, right? The, yes. Uh, the expected spinster has been done away with over the course of the boat trip and this confidence trickster has taken her place. Uh, she marries uh, Lewis and convinces him to open a joint account. Uh, so by the time he realizes the trick, she's disappeared with all of his money. Lewis at that point becomes obsessed with finding her, not to recoup his uh, financial loss, but to kill her. And when he does find her, well, I think that's when the book really begins in earnest yes which is 150 pages into yeah a, you know 300 some pages, pages i think is all prologue you know it's just it's he doesn't really get into the meat of it until he finally he finds her again completely by chance here's the main problem with the book is the main character is louis durand because here's the things two things we know 
in that first beginning, the first 70 pages before she dupes him. And the moment you see her, you know he's going to be duped. You know, it's this kind of story. It telegraphs it from a mile away. I don't think it's bad. I think the theme by the end of the book, you realize, is that it's obvious and he can't help himself. This is the theme. So in the first 70 pages, you're like, it's clear where this is going. It's clear what's going to happen. He's going to do a bunch of dumb things. You're not even on the edge of your seat about it because they're so dumb. He's such an obvious mark. The problem is, is that we know two things about Louis Durand. He owns a coffee importing business and he's a dum-dum. That's it. <laughs> There's no other personality to him expressed at all except is rich is a dummy and to spend a lot of time with him early on is torturous he has no interior life while rich gives him nothing interesting to do no interesting thoughts every other character that appears on the page is more interesting to him. And so when they come fleetingly through the book, you want to reach out and grab them and stop them from leaving because it's the only interesting thing happening until he gets into the, uh, when he finds her and becomes even more desperately entangled with her, in which, at which point his inability to resist her becomes his defining characteristic and starts to make him interesting. His sort of haplessness picks up weight as the film goes on until by the end of it, his, his stupidity about this woman is a weight that weighs on you as a reader and the ways in which you can see your own stupidity about love in him. And I, a good writer would have made him interesting regardless. Yeah. And I think that's what makes Woolrich not a great writer and what makes this a dividing line between a piece of pulp and a real piece of literature is that, you know, you don't know anything about the protagonists of Hill's like white elephants, right? <laughs> That's still an incredible story, you know? Yeah. I would say there's one more thing we know about Lewis and this might actually be uh, a case of Woolrich playing his hand too early. Uh, but one other, thing, one other thing we know is that he is ready to die. Like he wants to die. Yeah. And the overreaching theme of Woolrich's books is this fatalism, this expectancy of death. Um, he wrote a lot of books with black in the title, Black, uh, Bride Were Black, Black Angel, Black Alibi, Black Path of Fear. This book was originally called... Blackula, Blackenstein, Once Black <laughs> uh, This uh, book was originally called Waltz Into, into, into Black. Uh, until oh. He changed it. Um, and I think the defining uh, quote from one of his books, I think for his whole big theme is from black angel. It's, it's better to die for something than to live for nothing, which yeah. kind of defines Lewis at the beginning of this book. I think you can see both Woolrich's strengths and weaknesses in one segment early in the film where the background we get on him is that he was at one point engaged to this woman. Um, I'm going to read this quote here. It's Marguerite, a name that was all he had left he was faithful to that name until he died for he died too but more slowly than she had the boy of 22 died into a young man of 29 and then he too still faithful to the name his predecessor had been faithful to until he too died the young man of 29 died into an older man of 36 and suddenly one day the culminative loneliness of 15 years held back until now overwhelmed him all at one time inundated him and he turned his way in that almost in a panic any love from anywhere on any terms quick before it was too late 
only not to be alone any longer. So that kind of sets up why he's willing to be duped, why he doesn't see the clear, obvious signs in front of him when he falls for this woman, uh, because you realize he has this, he, he thinks that, you know, the next thing that's going to happen to him is he's actually going to actually physically die and he doesn't want to do it alone. Um, but this woman, Marguerite's also explained die. He, he went to, I, I think it was on their wedding day or it's either the day he goes to propose something like that. But like he finds that she's died of a heart attack right there and that they're taking her body out at the yes. moment, which is such a cheesy thing, you know, to set up. Yeah. And the way it's described is like the coming down the stairs, like with the covered, body in it right yeah doesn't he, doesn't he get there her, after she's dead even he doesn't yeah, even get a dying they're, they're moment carting her, they're carting her body out and it, it, they are going to get married that day because her arm falls out and the ring he sees the ring on the finger oh like he couldn't God. describe it in like a more cheesy way than that uh but it sets up this beautiful passage about you know how uh you, you know you die into an older man throughout your yes life, you know you'll and never that is yeah person again yeah. there are good passages like that in this book um are goodish and that's but that's you know that's two paragraphs out of those first 70 pages and i think it's one of those things where it's like i stand by what i what i said that first 70 pages is a whole lot of like he was very excited to own a house and he wanted his house to look nice because somebody mm -hmm. was coming home he thought i should get another object that looks nice i wonder if she'd like a hat you know these kind of like non-characterizations and non-thoughts but we get a lot of humor too out of you know his complete obliviousness. He expects her. He has this ideal thought of her that she's going to be this perfect. Do you think woman. it's supposed to be humorous? I think it is humorous a little bit because uh, you know he doesn't see the obvious things like the wedding ring he's bought for her. She sent him his her finger measurements, and they don't fit yeah. this woman. Uh, the, well, the, it should the, also be noted there's a character list uh, at before the the uh, table of contents. You know the like very pretentious like here are the players in this and they um have well, my copy doesn't have that oh really yeah the uh, i'm reading the american mystery classics edition uh does yours have the the notes about like and then the waltz ends at the end of it does it, it has those thing? introductory things yeah i've got the band the, the bantam paperback which was the first time it was released um, uncut in uh, in paperback form. Oh, because interesting. This must be characters that appear in the story and character that does not appear in the story. You don't have that in the, in the front? No, not at all. Well, it's, you know, it's uh, one of them is, uh, is Bonnie, who was once Julia. So you know there's a fake right at the beginning and it's Walter Downs, the private investigator of St. Louis and at Colonel Harry Worth, late of the Confederate army. It lays out everybody who's important, but it's like Julia Russell, the woman who comes from St. Louis to marry him, Bonnie, who was once Julia. So it's at the beginning, it's like, this is, she's a fake person. You know, you oh, should that's know. that's bizarre. Yeah, that's not in my edition. So that's and the bizarre. character that does not appear in the story, Billy, a name burned on a scrap of letter, an unseen figure watching a window, a stealthy knocking at the door. And just to give you a sense of the tone of what he's going for, when I say like it's pretentious and not effective, it, the first thing in my edition is the soundless music starts. The dancing figures appear, slowly drawn together. The waltz begins. Ooh, the waltz of crime. It's just like, guy, 
if you judge a writer by their metaphors, which I think is a fair way to judge writers, it's just such a colossal air ball. You know, it's just sure. Danny Green out there and you're like, get this guy off the court. It's Al Horford is how bad that is right there. I do think there is humor though in his obliviousness because on top of the wedding ring, um, What's the other I'm saying I think you might be right and hey, I missed let me, it. Let me, let me just describe yeah. like exactly what I mean. Yeah. Uh, she's brought a canary with her in her cage that she can't fucking <laughs> stand. Uh, and there's a bird murder, just like in Poltergeist, it's tied to Toby Hooper. There's a bird death, uh, a canary death in this book. Uh, I don't, I'm no expert in bird law, but you know, I'm pretty sure that that's against, against the rules. But uh, I, I don't think bird murders are illegal in most states, <laughs> certainly not in 1880 New Orleans. I'm, I'm no expert in bird law. Uh, but anyway... Um, and then what, what actually does make him suspicious, the very first thing, what is it? She crosses her legs. Yes. And he thinks it's very unladylike and very trampy. And a woman, my wife, a woman who is good enough to marry me, certainly would never sit like that on when she's sitting in private yes. in a bedroom. and that's a great scene. Yeah. That's the first scene in the book where I was like, this is great. And where she, where, you know, Bonnie, who was once Julia, begins to emerge as a character. She's a great character. She's, she's like a lot of noir stories, especially noir films, the hero is this generic dope and the woman is the whole story. Detour, oh, sure. double indemnity, uh, Laura even, where it's like the guy is just like a wall for this intense femininity to splatter against you know once bonnie begins to emerge as a character she does remind me actually of like a fassbender character you know who i pictured as bonnie the whole time well go ahead i'd like to tell you who i picture as well barbara sukawa from berlin alexander Platz. oh yeah interesting. she's got got that look not that personality obviously barbara sukawa is like a symbol of like purity and innocence in that movie in some way combined with depravity she's sort of like the inverse of bonnie in mm-hmm. some ways but that look of like just like this irresistible delicate beauty uh sort of dressed up in old-timey fashion to me so my first thought for bonnie was um uh, someone like Monique van de Ven from uh, Turks Delight, oh. um, and uh, 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 Kate, Katie Tipple, the uh, two Paul Verhoeven films. Although I realize another interesting thing, if this uh, had been adapted in the early '80s, uh, Dorothy Stratton, this could have been a really oh, interesting vehicle yeah. for her to like go beyond sort of the bubbly blonde image that she had in films and really kind of like sink her teeth into because she has this wholesomeness to her. But you could see that there's also something you know, darker underneath that she could have brought out for this role. Yeah, I was also thinking about um, Roxanne uh, Mishkeda. I think that's how you say her last name from The Last Mistress. Mm -hmm. The like incredibly delicate blonde in that, who in other films is quite a uh, lively and even vicious performer in some other movies who's like completely delicate. And I thought, oh, that would be really interesting casting as well. I think this would have made a great Catherine Brayot movie. I think this would have been a Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Movie. Anyway. Oh, I would love for her to adapt this. But um, I think we should mention about all these women is that they're too tall. This one's supposed to be really short. Uh, Catherine Deneuve is uh, also too tall. Anyway. Catherine Deneuve is too icy. And it's there, are other, at that, there are other problems, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at that, that point in her career when she, she sort of played these icy, hypnotized-looking blondes because that's what had made her famous in Belle de Jour and Repulsion. And she was still, she didn't learn how to become a good actress until later in her career. I would say that, that 
it, it's really the early 90s when she starts doing very interesting work. And now I think she's one of the greatest actresses in the world. Yeah. But her golden era, in a funny way, I'm, I, she does these, she looks like she should be in Herzog's Heart of Glass. She just has this zombified uh, mien to her. And I think Belmondo is even worse casting in Mississippi Mermaid because Durand has got to be a sort of hapless pushover. I think that they're both probably too overtly fat for it, but Emil Jannings and Charles Lawton are the two tight guys I thought of for this. Yeah, Belmondo is the exact opposite of Louis Durand in every respect. You know, charming, handsome, everything I would never anticipate. Former amateur boxer, somebody you can't push around. Yeah. Somebody just like effortlessly likable somebody wily and wry you know a very knowing performer too somebody who's like boxer's broken nose and a wink in his eye just like this is not Louis Durand <laughs> even slightly you yeah know? yeah no it's and, uh, the only thing I could think of for the casting of that is that uh you know Belmondo would have done Perola uh, Fou uh, a few years earlier and it has superficial similarities in terms of the you know deceitful woman who runs off you know but uh yeah. obviously and you that see book from is that also character. theoretically based on a pulp novel too on yeah 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 by Lionel White, but you can see in that movie belmondo's character does not react the way louis, louis duran reacts in this book yeah uh at all because that's not a belmondo type character <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's just it's terrible, terrible casting back back and forth with who would you who would you have cast as Louis Durand? I think that Charles Lawton's too fat, but I think that that um, sort of uh, implacable, unwoundable sensitivity, somebody who's like Lawton at, specialized in characters who were hyper attuned to the suffering of people around them and sort of hyper attuned to uh, feeling what the people around him were feeling in a lot of his most famous roles. I didn't land on a, a good candidate to play Durand, maybe because of his blandness, but because I was thinking Dorothy Stratton already, I just pictured uh, John Ritter. <laughs> That's not bad casting at all. That's yeah. not bad casting, especially if you want it to have a comedic edge, which I think you're right. When you go to me, it was like, oh, this is just so obvious. Does he expect us to be fooled? I guess not. If there's that character list in the front, I wonder That's if I, I mean. reread it and the comedy would play more to me because I don't find his other novels funny at all. So I yeah. wasn't looking at it. They Black usually Alibi aren't. is completely humorless. No, they usually aren't. Um, but I think that there are little bits uh, here and there. And again, this kind of speaks to this uh, really acute awareness that he seems to have throughout in terms of like how men react to women uh, where they go to the bank. Uh, and she's, you know, acting like, how does a bank work? I don't know anything about money. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, adding her name to the account uh, with the bank manager who he's friends with. And the line is the two men exchanged a look of condescending masculine superiority in the face of such an experience, their instincts made them like women to be that way, you know? So I mean, yes. he knows that men are morons and don't give women any credit and uh, think that any low woman certainly wouldn't be able to dupe them in any way or wouldn't come into their lives. or wouldn't even be part of their lives. Yeah. They only expect them to be these, perfect you know and and should be mentioned too in this early part of the novel he doesn't want her to wait on him or be there to fuck him you know it's like he just is obsessed with the idea of someone being there he just yes. loves the idea of this domestic bliss with a woman who's just there because she wants to be with him you know she just yes. wants to be part of this union 
And it's interesting. It's a good portrait too of how loveliness impacts people where he's asking on the boat about uh, at one point they're trying to find out what happened to the woman that she's replaced that bonnie castle who is julia's real name uh has replaced what happened to the original of julia um Mm -hmm. and they ask everyone on the boat about the real Julia and they're like, Oh, who the fuck are you talking about? And anyone they ask about Bonnie and describe Bonnie, they like rapturously remember like everywhere they go. Julia is rapturously remembered. And it's interesting. That's been my, it's a funny experience of, of beautiful women in life where, you know, I used to have this experience with a woman I was with where, just people on the street would stop and stare at her and like people would hold the door for her to the bodega all the way down the block. And then we'd turn because we weren't headed into the bodega. You know what I mean? Just like that kind of thing. And there's definitely that kind of woman that um, uh, Woolrich has a very clear sense of and does a good job of describing and sort of the humor inherent in the stupidity they inspire i do think um she's like a lot of the noir uh femme fatales she's a lot of fun she's a completely destructive force but she's also the most fun Mm -hmm. in the book and i think that that when it touches on that sort of the the realm of uh not moral relativity, but of immorality that is the natural habitat of the novel, the novel, the world in which Anna Karenina and Karen both have a right to be understood that neither is the villain, you know, mm-hmm. that, that Emma Bovary and her suitors are all have a right to be understood that there's a natural immorality to novels, to the novelistic look at the world uh, as an operating out uh, a morality, not immorality. There's an amorality to it operating outside of a moral sphere mm-hmm. that once she gets to take the center stage, it feels much more like a real book. And that sort of, you and know, how he's constantly responding to her yes. lack of morality. Right? Yes, like, just that. Little things the, that she does. My favorite of them being after he has murdered somebody and he's freaking out. Uh, afterwards, she eats a chicken leg. You know, yes. She's munching she's on a like, chicken well, leg. well, we didn't have dinner. You had dinner. I didn't have dinner. Right. I'm starving. Yeah. <laughs> and then she describes specifically when he's like, how could you not be freaking out about this person I just murdered? Her analogy is hilarious. It's, well, when I buy, when a, buy a hat, hat, I don't think about how I bought a hat all day. You know, like yes. every hour, I think back about how I bought a hat. Yes. I actually have that right here. Um, it's terrific. Which is... uh Say I buy a new hat. Well, once it's bought, it's bought and there's no more to it. I remember I bought the hat. It's not that I forgot that I've bought it, but I don't necessarily brood about it, dwell on it every minute of the live long day. I don't keep saying over and over, I've bought a hat, I've bought a hat, I've bought a hat. Do you see? And that's how she's convincing him to forget about the murder. <laughs> that you know, like, is the best part of it. Like, get I get it? It couldn't be more clear. <laughs> yeah, like, you've committed the murder. You don't sit around all day going, I've murdered somebody. Like, it's <laughs> it's done with. And, and that sort of um, unhinged id character is always such a compelling, entertaining character. You know, we were just talking with Bill Tech where I, I brought up Pantagruel and that sort of... Uh, uh, 
character that you can't justify in any way in terms of like, this is the right person, but is hugely compelling and entertaining just for being completely transgressive. You know, those, mm. those sort of characters are great. You see them a lot on sitcoms, you know, like Roger on American Dad types, just the, the uh, completely transgress no moral boundaries character are always very compelling and a lot of fun. And the more she gets to be herself, the better it is. Like, I love her frustration when they've completely run out of money and she's trying to teach him how to cheat at cards. Yeah. And just like, what's her line? He fucks it up and he's like, I've never met a man who can't win either by honestly or cheating. <laughs> After he gets busted for cheating, yeah, and she yes. scolds him by saying, I've never met a man who could not win honestly or by cheating. Yes, One of and the her two. signal, him trying to get Which the, really her to understand very the perfectly, I think, you know. Yes. <laughs> and she's a good character, but I also like the secondary characters, even when they're cliches, sort of the moral private investigator, Mr. Downs. Yeah. When he shows up, He's great. And the the sister of the real Julia who's disappeared, that character is great too. Her sort of uh, sagging moral dowdiness is a great touch for it in the book in some way. She's that, a that's real sort Miss of, Avisham, I thought. <laughs> exactly. Just this, this world that you go, why would you want to be that lady you want to be bonnie castle look how much worse this is or the the colonel you know um that he meets this book it's got to be pointed out it relies a lot on coincidences he finds uh julia slash bonnie again just by running into a guy that she's dating well that point in the book uh just to show what kind of an empty person he is other than his quest to find julia and kill her all he has in his life is that he likes to go and have a, what they call a whiskey punch at a hotel bar. Like that's yeah. his, that's his evening routine. That's how he runs. But, but not his hotel character. bar. Not Another even his, hotel. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's like his routine is all just, I'm going to go get a drink at this bar. And that's where he meets this Colonel character. And that leads to finding Julia who is running some con game on this character as well. Yeah, well, Julia's dating the colonel in some way, stringing him along, and they set up a double date. And Julia's the other woman on the is the friend of the woman on the double date, whatever it is. I feel like I've described that enough that it's coherent. And that's just how he finds her again. And there's a lot of lazinesses like that to it. I was really hoping because it is such lazy, and then he just finds her again, kind of thing. Um, that she was setting him up to get him again. I was like, this would be mm. delightful if he's, if she's going to get him twice, if she's going to nail him twice. And she does in a certain way, nail him twice and three times uh, to it. Um, Just sort of by happenstance, because she knows him. She knows she could dupe him. And indeed, when he has got the gun out ready to, to murder her, she gives him this ridiculous uh cockamamie cock and bull you know sob story about growing up you know parentless with no name and i have no up real by name some, by this billy guy you know uh being and him being the key murderer of the uh sister on the boat and he falls for it hook line and sinker not only does he fall for it but when she offers himself to him that night it's just like that's he's just sits connected for the rest of their life so she'll string him along for a while and then eventually she'll find a way to profit from his death through an insurance policy. Yes. And that's, again, even at the end of the book, this is at the very end. She's like inquiring about this insurance policy that's lapped, lapsed. And he's like, well, this is annoying. It's lapsed. Why is she asking me about this life insurance policy? Oh, I see what her scheme is. 
She wants to restore it so we can borrow money against it. Why that scheming lady? That's what she wants. Now I'm going to drink this special medicine she's made for me right now. That will be a great <laughs> this medicinal eggnog. In, in that point, it is... I don't think it's funny at that point. I think it's heavy and it's the theme at that point that that she will be able to destroy him. Yeah. You know, that that's just the fact that she will be able to. Yeah, effortlessly. It becomes the able, theme. That he first spends all of his money living with her and then borrow, uh, sells the rest of his company, gets more money and that that goes away. And just everything, you know, he's just draining everything into it. And even when he goes to his friend, his partner, to ask for the money, you know, he pretty much just says to him, like, I don't have much time left. This yeah. is going to result in me dying. But I, I want I all the time I can have too. with her. Yeah, he's a really good character I love as that well. scene. That reminded me so much of Wings of the Dove, of the you and me were better than that scene, hmm. where he's like, I'm your friend no matter what. And he's like, but I'm a murderer. And he's like, I'm, he's a, I'm your friend. Unbelievable, you know? unjudgmental buddy he's got there. Yeah. yeah. But that's, you know, you know I'd be that for you, John Cribbs. You oh. know, if you come to me with the murder that I'm selling well, we'll you your half of the pink smoke, you'll get the buyout <laughs> on that. And I won't judge you. Um... It's funny, though, that he is so enamored with her and still so repulsed by her personality when he, after the murder, when she gives him a kiss and he says he never knew a kiss could be such a gruesome thing, um, that he still has this idea of like, you know, a wholesome home that he's trying to create with her, uh, that when he's sitting in uh, Jardin's home, listening to the family getting ready for dinner and he thinks to himself to these people, murder is just something in the Bible, you know, that they have no concept of this life that he's taken being a fugitive running down, tracing the Gulf, you know, um, from one town to another. Uh, and that he's chosen this life because he's just chasing after this woman. And what he tells her specifically is, um, uh, let me just find the quote real quick. I, uh, no, no, it's not it. Oh, if I, uh, if she can't love me in a good way, let it be a bad way. Yeah. You know, yes. he's willing to kind of accept whatever she's willing to offer him. Yeah. It's, it, yes, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting book. This is what I mean by like, it's, he's a bad writer and this book is unfavorably comparable to, uh, you know, pick a piece of literature from the same time you know <laughs> right. uh that it's but it's still like it's got it it's got the goods there's something about it that you also completely understand why it endures and as much as i'm sort of goofing on it the I, there's a lot that's really compelling about it the, to me the problem is lewis durand but even once you get into the back half of it it becomes his his blandness becomes a um never becomes a virtue but it certainly becomes a thematic piece that's maneuvered uh successfully by yeah, well that's a, that's another thing to mention is that the first hundred pages of this book which we talked about as being you know this just this big setup to like where it's going to get interesting with uh her her big con game the last 50 pages of the book is this nothing significant happens. Yes. Uh, it's just their life together after he has proved to be complete rubbish as a, a cheater at cards. They have completely run out of money and they're just on the run from the murder. They're on the run from the murder and they're just trying to maintain this, uh, basically just surviving at this point together. 
Um, and he never has a thought of, you know, oh no, what are we going to eat for dinner tonight or anything? It's like, I, she wants to go out. She wants me to take her out and I can't give that to her. And he's just constantly yeah. thinking, I need to keep her happy. I need to keep her close to me. Uh, yes. And again, 50 pages of this and it really goes on, but it's absolutely compelling because at this point, I think Woolrich has established this guy as such a hopeless fool and that he just, just tumbling one down to another. And it's not like a quick thing when he takes the poison and dies. That's all. That's a whole 30 pages just of him, you know, slowly dying from this and, yes. and uh, you know, her, you know, taking him back home and at first just waiting for him to die and then realizing that as maybe somebody she actually loves this crazy prone fool. to stomach problems those those passages are brutal to me yeah. just like at, you know i used to eat a lot of things i was allergic to not understanding i had allergies and just the memory of those nights where it's like what's wrong with me just reading those passages where he's like <laughs> what's wrong with my stomach trying to get down the stairs or like isn't like cold sweats from it any movie with uh prolonged poison scenes are really hard for me to watch for that same reason you know when a character just doesn't realize they're slowly being poisoned to death and they just look awful and you can see how awful they feel it's just grueling to have to endure um so yeah you get a lot of that but um but he, he tells his friend, right? I think it's his, to his friend when he's uh, getting the money. Too late the day I met her. Too late the day I was born. Too late the day God created the world. You know, that it was just fated to happen. So even when she draws the ace of spades on him and says, that's going to be your fate. And he says, what's that mean? And she doesn't answer him. Um, you know, it's, he knows that he's just like slowly barreling down this hill to his death. And, and it doesn't matter to him because all he wants is this, uh, almost again to, to bring up sweet sickness it's almost like uh, the character in that book who has this deluded sense of domestic bliss where he set up this house and imagines that uh, his his dream woman will be there with him he sets up in his mind a sort of similar thing where like if i could just maintain this belief that she actually gives a shit about me then i don't mind dying for her i don't mind her killing me yes and there is something in beautiful about it you know i personally am not apt to buy into the its final ideas about the redemptive power of love that you know his fantasy of what his love will mean to her ultimately Mm -hmm. pays off you know he does get that one moment of true tears and true passion and i don't think in real life it works that way i think you get you know no, I think Woolrich... Jody Arias more than you get, you know, yeah. that one moment of of true passion, of true love from somebody. Woolrich always falls into the, you know, twist ending problem. Like the Bride War yeah. Black has a ridiculous twist ending to it that Truffaut wisely ignored in his adaptation, um, which is based on obs- obscene coincidence and uh, just completely... Uh, uh, worthless, you know, uh, a bit of writing... Uh, yeah. and I feel like this this uh, book has the same thing where she suddenly's like, I actually do love you after all, and now it's my punishment that you died, and I only just realized it. Um, I guess he felt like he needed a sting like that at the end, um, but I do, yeah, I don't buy it. It's not buyable. Yeah, to it's also funny. I was thinking with the ending of this book where uh, she's over his dying body, and the police are on the stairs knocking on the door, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no, he hasn't set it up in the, at all. And the line in the book is like, who knows why they were finally onto her. Maybe the neighbors had said something, right? And it's 
they're there because that's how it should end, right? That's right. the cliche of it. That's what the final moment should be. We leave him dying, the police arriving for her, a moment of true love. But what makes it like bad, lazy writing and storytelling, one of those coincidences is it would take no effort to set up a scenario in which the police are on their heels. To have them arrive is just purely, it's like the scene we're describing where the, uh, where the uh, corpse of his initial fiance is being brought out of the house, where it's just, it's this scene that he sort of puts together as a scene and doesn't think through uh, how to make it more realistic, how it connects to the rest of the world of the, of that he's writing. And in this case, it just feels so sloppy. Like there is no reason for the police to be banging on the door, uh, even speculatively. Um, it makes no sense and it would be effortless to set up to yeah. make it make sense in Absolutely. some way. Or you just leave it like open-ended in some way that police are knocking at the door. You don't mention in, in a funny way, he does himself a disservice by being like maybe the neighbors saw, and then it draws focus to the lack of motivation. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a left-handed gauche well, uh, maladroit me. gesture to be like, Oh, whoops. You know what I mean? He essentially yeah. writes in a line that's like, whoops. And then you're like, Oh, I wouldn't have thought about that. Or it's no longer as satisfying. It's impossible to be a satisfying ambiguity anymore now that you've put that line in there. Right. It's almost like Norm MacDonald narrating the end. So he's dead. Well, that's Good it. <laughs> um, the police showed up. Good night, yeah, it's, everybody. It's, it's completely set up that the papers are all running, you know, that they're looking for these people who've murdered this detective Downs, who's tracked them down and whose yeah. body has now been discovered. We know that they are going from one city to another to get away from them. We know that the sister would still probably be, you know, employing people to try to find them to avenge her sister. Um, yeah, there, there, there are all sorts of possibilities. I know, and to me, and fifty to me, pages too to be, set this it up. It should be, it should be Billy, who we know is there, following them that night, conspiring to kill Durand. It should be him banging on the door, screaming he's going to kill her because she's betrayed him. It's That's funny. what the ending should be. Yeah. It should be Billy. He's there, mm-hmm. an unseen presence, the thing looming over, the danger in her life that she's rejecting, in locked inside the room, you know, doing yeah. the real thing of locked in the door of your secrets, guarding it at the door <laughs> of your secrets, right? Yeah. And it, it, there's just a million better endings. And then, and, and then the cops were there, too. So it's curtains for that lady. <laughs> yeah, and it's been set up, too, that Billy had threatened to blackmail her or expose her in the past. So that would have been completely characteristic of what we know and of Billy. He's there they're hiding from her yeah. they're running yeah. hiding from him they're running away from him that night he's the logical pursuer in yeah. some fundamental to show up way. instead of the cops yeah i it's funny that you say that there's this uh, uh you know table of contents from the beginning of your book or, or this index character index where it specifically says billy does not show up as a character um because at first i was like who is this guy is this guy really exist is he actually a, a real person uh, based on her story, or is it just, you know, she made it this accomplice to, so he wouldn't know that she's the one who killed the woman. Um, but by the end, it was working for me. It made me think of like the chauffeur from Burnt Offerings, you know, this silent kind of character who's always on the edge of things and is just sort of ominous. He's more just like a device than a character, you know? Yeah, I like that, though. I think that's good. I'm, yeah, I'm saying I it was working for me. I think that's good stuff. Yeah, it works. for sure. It works. I think yeah, yeah. No, I liked it, too. 
that works. I think there's a lot about, I think the book works as critical as I am of it. I think it ultimately works. And I think that, I think that though, what I will say is this, is that when writers are in a genre where they feel like they, their reputation is constrained by the genre in which they write and they want to prove themselves by writing something that's their rebellion against the constraints of the genre and what they're known for. That is frequently like, if not, don't read that one, then that's advanced studies. It reminds me of Lewis Carroll's Sylvie and Bruno, you know, okay. where yeah. it's like, that's when he's like, no, this is me for real. And it's like, no, dude, Alice in Wonderland and Hunting <laughs> the Snark are you for real. Yeah. Sylvie and Bruno is not you for real. This is the same thing where it's, it's like, this is not Colonel Woolrich for real. This is him trying to be for real. And in a funny way, it makes it not real. It makes it not a great example of what he is and what makes him compelling. Sure. The more streamlined he is, the better. I, I think I think a good way to judge his books is the thinner they are, the better they are. Yeah. And I mean, this is a guy too, you know, who went through the pulps and the short stories, obviously. So he need you know, that's what, you know, he knew is that he knew get the audience involved, get them get sell the hook and you know, and then wrap it up um, you know, in this amount of pages. And so a book like Phantom Lady or Bride War Black. Uh, are definitely going to be something that he's more laser focused on. So, but but I think that you know there's enough of that stuff in this that if he had, if it had been a shorter book and kept only the good stuff, you know. Um, but at the same time, I don't know because I, like I, I like said, the, the last heaviness. the, the, I like heaviness, how the last big it fifty is. pages, you know, uh, are are fun in their weird non-action you know <laughs> they're they're weird and interesting he uses the length to good effect yeah is what i will say about it it's not one i read and go that would have been better being shorter i read it and go the he it needs to be that long mm -hmm. and when you start out because it's so obvious where it's going you do feel like or i did feel like this is not great this needs to be shorter but by the time it gets to the end to have him betrayed and make stupid mistakes and lied to to his face five times is one thing 25 times is another thing yeah uh, just like the accumulation of pebbles becomes a wall you know mm -hmm. i don't know where i heard that phrase recently but <laughs> maybe I just, just stole that it. phrase no i just stole it from someone i can't remember where i heard it <laughs> but it's got that accumulation of little things uh becomes becomes heavy by the end there's no question um, I've got two more things to say about this book myself, uh, just to point out. I love that uh, when they're broke and uh, when she's gotten used to, you know, uh, being waited on by him and having, you know, going out every night and living this life that she's never really known uh, with this guy, what really tears her heart out is that she can't go out and show off this uh, wine red yeah. uh, taffeta dress that she has uh, another red dress. Like I'm dangerous tonight, yes. the, uh, the dress, you know, and I love that uh, just as much as Toby Hooper in that film, Woolrich loves deadly clothes and like clothes that kind yes. of are tied into fate and death uh, like that dress is. And that image too, of her coming back into the house and 
undoing the dress and letting it loosely fall onto the floor and his reaction to that of like, Oh my God, I've totally failed this, this poor woman who can't go out to dinner, you know, is a very striking moment. Uh, The other thing I'm just, uh, my favorite adjective, as I like to point out from new books, uh, gingerbready from this book. <laughs> uh, the house she selects for them in Mobile is, is a, a gingerbready affair. Mobile. Mobile. From Mobile, Alabama. That is one of the things I liked about this book. My family's from uh, Louisiana in a roundabout way, or certainly they lived in Louisiana for a long time. And I grew up as a kid when I was very young in Louisiana and then moved back to New Orleans when I was older. I I like spending time in New Orleans. I like Mobile. Mobile's a city I really um, enjoy a lot. That Mobile, Biloxi, New Orleans stretch is uh, an area of the country I have a huge amount of affection for. Mobile is actually a very pretty city. It's a coastal city. It has some absolutely lovely uh, gardens in it and sort of private and public gardens. And spending the time in those places, he does really evoke New Orleans. Um, and it's probably easier because New Orleans has such a preserved and amber quality that its touristic qualities are based on an old timey sense of New Orleans, uh, that you still get a sense of the city reading this book, that, that his research can be more palpable than if he were, you know, writing about ziggurats or what the hell ever, you know which what I mean? All, which is all Woolrich's appreciation for it too. I mean, yes, Lewis doesn't give a shit about New Orleans. He yes. doesn't give a shit about coffee. Like literally none of that stuff is anything to do with him. And I think Woolrich really focuses on his obsession with Julia slash Bonnie, that yes. he has no use for anything else. Any, no city is going to touch his heart, no uh, ambition. And we learned too from uh, Jardin or when they comes to ask for money, he apparently was an ambitious young guy who, you know, was yeah. a good fella who wouldn't work for any, didn't want to work for anyone. He wanted to be his own man and who would, you know, who had Jardin's back, you know, like they were partners yeah. together and that, that person is completely dead. You know, again, there's that idea that like, you know, your, your youthful self is gone. It's never coming back again. Like that, that part of you has died and now yes. you are a completely different person who will also die, you know, just be a series. <laughs> life will just be this series of death from like one stage to another. Yeah. And I do, I really enjoy the books relentless exploration of the theme of love as supplicating your heart before somebody and um, total giving of yourself to someone. Uh, and that the unluckiness of loving somebody who is not going to love you back, not going to give you anything back, but his love is true and proven by his willingness to be abused by her in some yeah. way, that there's there's something strange about his love to that, that um, I think this is a romantic book in that way. I don't necessarily share its perspectives on what romantic love is, but it has a commitment to it that it's um, it's the, the Christ-like suffering for romantic <laughs> love, that if you love all of humanity, you must suffer like Christ. If you love one specific person for it to be true love, it is will it, you must endure that suffering. Mm. Otherwise it's a falsehood in some way. He is convincing though in the effect that love can have on a person and how it yes. can stave off that feeling of, of doom. Um, speaking back to your, you know, when you said that, you know, everyone responds to her and that she has this life force about her, that she's on the ship and her skirt comes up and a guy, uh, you know, she smiles at a guy and he's like, that was for me. That smile was for me. Um, <laughs> but two separate passages. Um, 
once when he's without her before he's found her again. And it talks about people passing him and seeing him uh, like looking at something you think is alive only to find it's inanimate after all. Uh, And then after they've gotten together again and they're they're going to their new home and it's the happiest time of his life. um, That's when uh, people are looking at them enviously because now he has that life force. Like he's part of that life. That he makes old couples feel young. Exactly. Right. 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 And I think that it's also fascinating the idea of love as not a moral system, you know, that Mm -hmm. love divorced from uh, any kind of moral system, how, how horrifying it is in some way that if you remove love from social structures, uh, which is a lot of what the book is about, that if you strip away social mores and you're with somebody who's willing to smoke cigars and play cards, a lady who plays cards who wants to be in the card playing room. Um, who crosses her legs and, yes. and, and him like being accepting that ultimately and saying, when she said, I know you don't like when I smoke cigars. It's like, it's okay. You can go ahead and I, it's all right. Accepting yeah. that, you know, kind of inadvertently saying, accepting who she is, what her actual yes. personality is. But that know, there's something deeply sort of... disturbing about it. That mm-hmm. love is, is a disturbing thing in some ways as romantic as it's it is. It's destructive ultimately, yeah. yeah. Yes, but it's also romantic. It's redemptive and destructive. I think the ending, he, it's a fascinating book. Look, I like this book. I like mm-hmm. the ideas in this book. I'm, I am interested in it, I think is very fair to say about it, even yeah. as, as I'm... Um, goofing on it occasionally here mm-hmm. in some way john what was your dessert pairing to go with it uh my dessert pairing is a novel called before the fact which is written by anthony berkeley cox writing as francis eels uh and good old background... frankie eels <laughs> and the background here uh because you know hitchcock and woolrich end up being entwined you can't you can't help it but it's the uh inspiration for his film suspicion which yeah. is a terrible film. Uh, I think it is one of my least favorite films ever made. It's just F minus. Incredibly boring. It is a slog. It is the shots uh, of Cary Grant being silly. insane are ludicrous. Yeah, they are. They are an embarrassment. It does what I think would have been impossible for any other filmmaker. It completely drains Cary Grant of any charm or personality. (laughs) Um, uh, It's, it's awful. Um, But what I was interested to read the book was because I had read, um, she suspects Cary Grant's character in the movie of being this uh, black widower, right? This poisoner of women uh, and that he might be trying to kill her. And the yeah. book ends in a, you know, Hollywood fashion where everything's okay and he's not the poisoner and they're happy together and yada, yada. And it makes you think, why did I just sit down and watch this goddamn movie? Why did he behave any way he behaved in the movie except as plot device and cinematic artifice? To, to make you suspect that he, yeah, there was no <gasps> reason at all. It's, yes, his, his behavior is like, well, he's not trying to kill you, but he's a crazy person, at least, lady, <laughs> for way he doesn't understand he's what a human being is, if that's how he's behaving. He's a charmless and he's not dud and a non-personality at the very best. goofy, like, ominous faces with like strike lighting of like (laughs) it's ludicrous but i read that the book the way the book ends fascinated me which is that he is the poisoner and that he serves her what she knows is poison and she loves him so much that she drinks it anyway yeah 
and dies. And I thought that is an amazing ending. Yeah. And, you know, in his defense, I guess you could say Hitchcock had wanted to end it like that, but of course the studio wouldn't let him. Um, I don't know. I heard he's completely in charge of every single thing of his films and there's nothing in it that wasn't <laughs> meticulously planned in advance and that he's, he was not undefeatable. So clearly that's all bullshit. Um, yeah. um, whether or not that would have redeemed the first, you know, 80 minutes of the movie at all is questionable, but the book is a really good um and and i'm sorry to ruin the ending for everyone uh to read it but Next obviously you want to read it but obviously it sets up uh, the sort of the same device of uh the last 50 pages of waltz into darkness which is that you know to be so in love with someone that you will literally let them kill you if that will make yeah. them happy <laughs> you know is a beautiful horrible thought you that's know? almost what berlin alexander plats to is in some way it is, is, is to to almost completely supplicate yourself and let yourself die for someone you know is no no good for you or mm-hmm. is dangerous in some way for sure with yeah. that i would also mention just i because i uh thought about this as my dessert it doesn't really fit ultimately but it's funny that the leopard man uh is an adaptation of black alibi because of the rko films produced by val luton i think it's the least cornell woolrich-esque yes. i think something like um cat people or even the seventh victim uh have a lot more in line because these are two artists i'm who had always very surprised similar... seventh victim isn't woolrich yeah because these two it. artists had very similar interest in fate and death and things like that and uh and death not even necessarily in like a bleak way but as sort of like this uh thing that just happens to people and that people are aware of in movies you know luton sort of introduces death as a concept in films you know not as a as a device with you know there's danger around the corner but like uh seventh victim is just ultimately about like hey you're gonna die death death as something so as like an object almost death almost as like a totem Mm -hmm. in some ways in in those in the val luton movies death is saying like death is a character is a a, would be a dumb cliche but death as like an object for sure death Mm -hmm. death is a thing a thing that is in everyone's life is definitely felt in those movies it's funny that you say you weren't going to pick leopard man because i was getting ready to say the same thing where i thought about picking leopard man was like i'm not going to do that let me pick um i should say the leopard man is a fantastic movie but yes not very rich as compared to the other ones i watched it again recently and like all of those val luton rkos whichever one you've just watched you're like that's the best one you know yeah um I am picking, I was like, let me pick another movie from the same era. And I am picking the Barbara Stanwyck movie, No Man of Her Own, directed by Mitchell Lyson. Um, I was actually thinking about this movie. Um, It's based on I Married a Dead Man, which is one of his his books that gets adapted a fair amount where... I think it's been adapted more than any of his books. It's been done a lot. Yes, it's it's the most famous adaptation I think is Mrs. Winterborn, right? With Makes Shirley MacLaine and Ricky Lake. I don't know that movie in its day was something. Maybe it's nothing now. <laughs> but um, Barbara Stanwyck is great. Essentially, this is another woman to pretending to be somebody else story and ingratiating herself into a pregnant woman uh, pretends to be the widow of someone essentially and but it's done from the woman's perspective where she's the main character barbara stanwick plays the main character and this movie gets described as a film noir i find it more to be a melodrama than anything else more than a melodrama yeah and um it's it's like 
uh, we were describing with uh, the Bonnie Castle character and Walls into Darkness, this movie is fun in its heightened emotions in some way that it's, it's willing to go whole hog. Um, I think is really, it's a movie that should not be fun. And it feels, uh, it feels a little, uh, a uh, bit of degeneracy to call it fun, but it's got very heightened emotions. It's very melodramatic. I think it's very good. And I was actually thinking about it because Mitchell, Mitchell Leeson, the director is a guy who I have always been really interested in. I feel like he is not considered an auteur only because he had the unfortunate problem of his four best films being written either by Billy Wilder or Preston Sturges. Sturges, So if you hear about Mitchell Leeson, you hear about him in the context of the scripts he wrote that Billy Wilder wrote for him or the scripts that Preston Sturges wrote for him, which are uh, Easy Living and Remember the Night and Hold Back the Dawn and Midnight. And so he's one of those funny guys from Hollywood who managed to get overshadowed by his writers. He sort of has his auteur status snatched by other auteurs and um i think he's an interesting director i don't think he's fantastic or anything but i think you can make a similar case for how he's interesting that you could to a lot of those guys from the golden era of hollywood who are very hit and miss even somebody like howard hawks you know who um worked in a lot of different genres and made some really good ones and made some really forgettable ones. Uh, and he has a few that don't fall under the shadow of the big writers. Like Death Takes a Holiday is a really good film. Yes. Great movie. I even yeah. like um, the, 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 uh, the other uh, uh, Casella adaptation. Fuck. Murder of the Vanities. Murder at the, Murder Vanities. At the Vanities. Yeah. Is the, uh, is the other uh, Casella adaptation he did with, with that takes a holiday. And he's, he's one of those guys that ended up in TV somehow late in his career. Um, and I think he's interesting. And I think No Man of Her Own is an interesting film that in some ways, uh, is instructive too of what a mainstay Woolrich was that this it's, not really a Woolrichy movie that much, um, but just let's get a Woolrich book and make what we can out of it. You know, that it's just sort of, he was a hot property in some way, or if not a hot property, popular to, uh, to adapt. And so all kinds of movies were made out of his work. He was just somebody who was snatched up and adapted in some very fundamental way uh, in Hollywood in the fifties. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's uh and of course, Barbara Stanwyck is always is great yes. in everything. She's just, the best. Uh, resonates just uh, right off the screen. Yes. If she's let down in the movie, her co-stars, she's sort of, it's that problem of you can't set her against people that she's going to blow off the screen and she blows everybody off the screen in this movie. Yeah. Uh, one one last choice I'll just throw out there that I considered, although really only kind of covers the portion of the book where he's uh, hunting for her is hardcore, the Paul Schrader movie. Oh, this, this, yeah. This man who kind of goes off into this world that he has completely no idea what it is. And uh, the scene at Mardi Gras where he tracks this woman just because her hair is somewhat similar to Julie. Yes. She's blonde hair uh, and almost kills her, even though she's masked and he has no way of believing that it's her. He's so convinced. He's so dead set on his vengeance that he almost murders this poor innocent woman um sort of just the described debauchery of mardi gras even though in the book it is set at the wrong time of year for all his uh his research um 
Yeah. And also the scene, yeah, where he's got hunting for his daughter. Yeah. When he goes to the whorehouse and he's asking to see all the different women and he thinks he's found the right one and it's not. And the woman, the first time she's ever been rejected, I think it's that he's the door is closing before she even realizes that he's gone. (laughs) She's shocked because no one can resist her is very hardcore. That's yeah, that's a a fun comparison. (laughs) All right, John, I'm I'm glad we read this. What are we doing next month? Do you want to announce the the next one for read alongers? Chris, the next book we're going to be reading for the podcast. We're very, I'm very excited to, uh, have a, a, a previous guest return, Mr. Stephen Scheel, filmmaker um, and book collector. Uh, he Paperback this, aficionado. Yeah, no, uh, expert in lots of fascinating stuff. Master I, of obscurities, of pulp obscurities, I think is a fair description of him. I think that's perfect description. And uh, what we settled on doing was uh, uh, Sanze Holdings' book, The Blank Wall. Uh, which for those who don't know was um, the source for Max Ophel's film, The Reckless Moment. Um, but this is one that Steve picked for us and I am very excited to read for the first time. And read it and then uh, let us know what you think of it. Yeah. And listen to the episode. Stephen Shield was a great guest. We had him on before to talk about uh, uh, Werner Dixon, a very uh, obscure overlooked pulp novelist. And that, uh, uh, Stephen sort of discovered, rediscovered in some way. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting talk. And so I'm excited. Basically anything he, he says, read this, I'm, I'm going to read is my experience of him. Mine as well. All right, uh, John. Thank you, Chris. And uh, thanks, Cornell Warwich, for, you know, writing your books. And as, thank as you, as always, as they are. to our Patreon subscribers. The I'm Dangerous Tonight commentary track will be going up shortly. And thank you to all of our listeners who are now able to hear us without the Patreon paywall. Check out our check out the Patreon because we've got some good stuff in there coming up. And have a good night, John Cribs. Good night, everybody. Good night.